This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Patrick Briscoe. And welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. So for this episode of Godsplaining, we're very delighted to be joined by Professor Joshua Stucklick. So thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, for our listeners who do not yet know you from maybe your contributions to the Thomistic Institute podcast, would you say just a brief word as to who you are and where you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so I am a, a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I've been a member of the faculty there for uh, 12 years now. And uh, this year, I'm also a uh, fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. So I'm coming at you from Annapolis, Maryland today. That's awesome. Um, God bless America. So, God bless America, indeed. Uh, I, have an, I have an uncle and a cousin who were midshipmen. I mean, were commissioned officers in the United States Naval Academy. So our visits to the Naval Academy, though not frequent, uh, were always a source of great, yeah, just great encouragement. And um, when, the, when the Thomistic Institute started up at the Naval Academy, I visited there once, and I was just super impressed by, one, the leadership, but a leadership informed by not just Catholic principles, but like a genuine Catholic life. So that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, all right. So then, apropos of your engagement with the United States military, we thought that this would be a good opportunity to talk a little bit about, a little bit about warfare in the Catholic tradition. Um, so people have war on the mind with the war ongoing between Russia and Ukraine uh, and its allies. Uh, so many, many people, I suppose, are aware that the Catholic Church has a tradition of reflection on this theme, but maybe you could introduce us to the, this, this, this tradition, uh, and we can start with the principles or the criteria for a just war. So in order to prosecute a just war, what things need to be true of the engagement? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the the core, I think, of what you're referring to, which is in just war theory, known as you said bellum, which is what criteria need to be in place before it's just to resort to a war. Um, the the core of that goes back to Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, who discusses this in the Summa, and uh, Aquinas lists there three big um, criteria, three big things that have to be in place for a war to be just. He says, first of all, um, the war must be declared and led by uh, a sovereign authority. Sometimes this is called legitimate authority or competent authority today. So the idea behind that criterion is just that uh, the person or the body who is declaring and leading the war um, uh, has to be the person who's like the authorized representative of the political community as a whole. Uh, because war is undertaken, um, by the community as a whole for the sake of, of the common good of that community. And the, the person or the body who has ultimate uh, responsibility for the common good and so ultimate authority is the, um, is the sovereign. Um, in our case, that, that would be Congress. Uh, the US Constitution specifically gives Congress the, the war-making power um, in, our, in our system. Um, second, Aquinas says uh, there has to be a just cause. This is in some ways the, the core of the just war theory that um, political power and coercive power, coercive force 
um, ultimately exist to serve justice, justice as an aspect of the common good of the community. Um, so there has to be some specific wrong that the, the use of force at the war is responsive to. Um, and the three um, classic uh, conditions that he gives are um, defense, of the, defense of the common good or defense of the commonwealth uh, against aggression, um, retaking some land or some resources that have been unjustly taken by another community that doesn't want to give them back, um, or third, a punishment of, of evildoing, letting wrongdoers know that they're not going to be able to, to get away with it, but that um, wrongdoing has consequences. Uh, and then the third and final criterion that Aquinas lays down is right intention. And this is particularly important because uh, we don't seek peace in order that we can go to war, but rather uh, we, serve, we undertake war for the sake of peace. So the, the idea behind right intention is that the, the goal of the war as a whole um, has to be to serve that just cause, that's the basis for the war, like that cause can't just be a, like a pretext. Um, to serve justice, but ultimately then to build a better, uh, more stable, and more lasting peace. So that's the ultimate end of war. Um, people who, who engage in war, uh, people who fight just wars at least, um, Aquinas says they're, they're not opposed to peace, what they're opposed to is an, an evil peace. And the whole point in, in undertaking war is to bring about a better, more just, and, and more lasting peace. Um, so those are the three big criteria that Aquinas lays down. Um, later, just war theorists added um, certain additional criteria. Sometimes these are called prudential criteria. And the, the idea behind those is, well, when we undertake war, uh, we don't want it just to be just. We also want to um, go to war in a way that's wise, right? We don't want to be stupid in the way that we use force. Um, so there are three really other than kind of um, prudential considerations that we have to take into account. Um, and these, these are a little more difficult to apply Right, prudence is always dealing with the nature of the concrete and particular circumstances that you're in and the uncertainty that you're in. Um, but the three of these were, first of all, this idea of proportionality. So before you um, enter into a war, you should have some idea of like how good would it be to achieve the, the just cause if you succeed, but also what are the, the anticipated bad effects of that war going to be, right? Um, because war brings about lots of death, lots of destruction. Um, innocent civilians get caught up in war in all sorts of ways, right? We know that war has a tendency to, to spiral kind of out of control, to be much more expensive in terms of blood and treasure than we um, maybe initially thought it was going to be. So we have to think about that. Um, does, does the good of going to that war really outweigh the, the anticipated bad effects? Um, second, uh, war should be a last resort, right? So again, the idea behind just war is that uh, war is for the sake of peace and to serve to serve peace and to correct injustice, it's one tool that uh, a community has available for that, but it's not the only one. Um, there's also diplomacy, there's uh, economic sanctions, and they're not, those other means aren't as inherently destructive as, as war can be. So uh, the idea there is that we should try those other, resort, those other means first. Um, war should be um, entered into only when all other reasonable um, other means have been exhausted first. And then finally, the, the final prudential criteria was, this, was the idea of prospect of success. Um, war should have clearly defined objectives to it. Um, there shouldn't be like mission creep, right, where the, the war expands in, in ever-increasing ways. Uh, there should be some clearly defined objectives there. 
and uh, there should be some reasonable hope of actually um, being able to obtain them before you before you go to war and unleash war. So, Professor, tell me, to a lot of people, this probably sounds like some of the ideas that are that are inherent or more natural, right, uh, about self-defense. Um, these kind of ideas are often bandied about or are increasingly bandied about in American culture in a number of ways. Would you say, therefore, that in order for a war to be just, it has to be a defensive war? Could there ever be a possibility where there could be a just war that is more of a kind of aggressive war? Or is the defensive nature always necessary for for war to be just in the Catholic perspective? Yeah, that's a really great question. So uh, Thomas Aquinas, who I was drawing on, he doesn't make an explicit distinction between defensive and offensive war. Um, There were later scholastics who who made that distinction. But yeah, they did think that sometimes there could be a just uh, offensive war. you know, even if you think about self-defense, uh, you don't necessarily have to wait till the other guy's like beating you to a pulp before you fight back, right? Uh, if if he's making at you with a menacing look on his face and says, you know, I'm going to kill you, um, you can strike the first blow in that in that sense. Um, but I think what's really key to to the just war tradition isn't that war is necessarily defensive, but it's always responsive, right? There's there always has to be some precedent in justice that is responding to. It could be that an invasion is ongoing or it's imminent, but there can be other just causes there as well. Um, so those other two things I mentioned, right? Retaking lost land and uh, punishment of wrongdoing. Uh, those could justify an offensive war. If someone has um, stolen your land or stolen land from an ally, think of like uh, when Iraq invaded um, Kuwait during the, the first Gulf War. Um, I mean, sometimes that's categorized as like a collective war of self-defense, but really, I mean, Iraq had already um, taken Kuwait or he conquered it. Um, we were then going in to, to, to liberate it, right? To retake that land that had been unjustly taken. Um, so it, it doesn't matter necessarily like if you're striking the first blow or not, but it does matter, um, that there is some precedent in justice that you're trying to correct, that you're trying to respond to. Um, so it's it's interesting in this conversation, you broach the topic or one broaches the topic of responsibility. So obviously in American geopolitical history, there's this ongoing debate as to how isolationist or interventionist the country should be, which dates back to its, you know, kind of to its founding. Um, and that's always on the table, it seems, when we're talking about economic matters, but especially when we're talking about military matters. Um, and so, you know, like in a from a Christian perspective, we don't believe in some thin universal ethic of kind of vague brotherhood. We have a very keen sense of our responsibility, but we also recognize certain limitations to it. You know, when you live on a planet with 7 billion plus people, it's like, I can't vindicate all their rights at the same time. (laughs) I need to choose a couple. Um, So maybe could you just expand a little bit about um, this theme of, of responsibility, how it comes into play in the conversation and how we might think, you know, because it's a place where we can really get overwhelmed by rhetoric on the one side or rhetoric on the other, which becomes very emotionally charged or anecdotal. How can we think more responsibly about responsibility? Yeah, great. I mean, that's a really, that's a really huge question. I don't think there are any like good, easy, cut and dried uh, answers here. I mean, on the one hand, right, the, the primary responsibility of a government um, and its its use of its military forces is to protect the the common good of the particular 
political community um, that it's responsible for. Um, so the primary use of military power then will be to uh, obtain, uh, uh, to correct injustices against that particular community. Uh, but that's not to say though that that's the um, exclusive purpose of government either, right? Um, we all have, we, we, every country has allies that it's, that it signs treaties with to come to the defense of. Um, but beyond that, I mean, um, as Christians, we, as you mentioned, we do have obligations to neighbors all around the world who are in need. Um, so, you know, the question is, when do we, when do we intervene maybe in other countries where there's, um, where their governments are perpetuating injustice, where their governments are letting massive injustices go on? Um, well, there it's, it's a consideration that, you know, there are these massive injustices taking place. Uh, we, as, as neighbors to these people, um, that, that means that it counts in favor of, of intervening, that we could help them. Um, but that has to be balanced against what are the geopolitical consequences of this intervention going to be? Is this the kind of thing that is going to be perceived by others as a just war? Is it going to be perceived as pretextual? Um, what is it going to cost our own country in terms of uh, troops, in terms of money? Uh, the, I mean, those are all really matters of, of, of prudence. Again, it's going to depend on the circumstances. So, so there's not really going to be a cut and dried answer, yes or no. Um, so then maybe following up a little bit on the question of responsibility, um, uh, you, you talked about some of the words that you used in your explanation were like neighbors or allies, things like that. So there are different ways in which we associate with other countries, other peoples, other communities, kind of be what uh, community is a word that you've You've um, you've used with some frequency, probably not to take a stance on the nature of the sovereignty exercised within the political boundaries. Um, so then, uh, like as you know, Christians thinking through these things, we want to be able to talk with our secular contemporaries in a way that's um, the way that's coherent. But we also have a kind of inside track as to the the coherence of the things that are at stake. Um, and and one of those Christian notions which gives us some help or some aid is this notion of the order of love, the ordo amoris, that we're somehow more responsible for those things which are closest to us. Um, and this kind of runs counter to a lot of people's assumptions about Christianity to think, again, thin universal ethic, it's about loving everybody equally. And if you have a choice between your own you know, flesh and blood and somebody else, well, you should choose somebody else because it would be selfish to choose your own flesh and blood. When, like the Catholic tradition often affirms that we're responsible most intimately, most urgently for those things which are closest to us. Um, maybe just in your kind of engagement with this particular tradition, do you see this order of love work its way out in the way in which, you know, war is declared and prosecuted? Uh, or is that maybe just a blind alley? No, I think that I think the order of love is 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 very important. I think I, I mean, without using that term, um, I was already implicitly talking about that when I was talking about the responsibility of government being first and foremost to its own to its own uh, citizens. Um, however, another, I think, aspect of the order of love, um, is just thinking about what, what justifies, um, killing in the first place, what justifies even killing evildoers. Um, yeah. obviously we can never, um, intentionally kill innocent people, but, um, especially people who come from the tradition of pacifism often wonders what could possibly ever justify even killing the guilty, even killing wrongdoers. And I think what you see in the Catholic tradition, um, and especially in Aquinas, 
here bringing in the idea of the order of love. Um, and one idea is that um, there's different, also different kinds of goods that can be loved in different ways. Uh, one is the private good of an individual, yourself or your neighbor. But another sort of good is the common good of the community as a whole. Um, and um, Aquinas, I think, is very explicit that the that common goods are to be loved more than individual goods. Um, of course, the greatest common good of them all um, is God. This is why we should love God above all things. Um, but we should love the common good more than an individual good. And what happens in war is that the, the common good of the community includes as an aspect um, justice, order, and security. And uh, a wrongdoer has put, put himself, himself or herself, precisely in opposition to that, to that overall order of the common good. And so now we have to choose. Um, do we um, choose their good or do we choose the good of the community as a whole? And it may be um, right that um, the only way or the most expedient way to preserve the common good as a whole is precisely um, through um, expelling the wrongdoer. Um, this, this is how Aquinas justifies um, capital punishment explicitly, right? He uses the analogy of, um, of a body with, which is a whole and has parts. Um, in general, we should love all the parts of a body as well, but it may be that a certain part, like a hand, has become um, infected in some way. And the only way you can preserve the whole is precisely through amputating the part. In that case, um, the good of the whole is gonna have precedence over the good of the part. And you would say same thing, this happens in, in capital punishment as well, um, where the, the good of the whole community is taking place over the good of the, the individual who's, who's receiving the death penalty. Um, now, lest that sound like it's kind of going in a utilitarian direction, right? The, the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. Um, it's not it's not quite like that because the for Aquinas the good of the whole uh, precisely precisely is justice. Um, so those kind of considerations is never they're never going to justify um, killing an innocent person in order to preserve the good of the whole. If the good of the whole is, is justice, then killing an innocent person precisely damages um, the good of the whole because it's an injustice against them. So war itself can be is justified in part by thinking about the idea of the order of love. So one of the things that we're, that we're facing today, Professor, right, is how warfare has evolved since the time of St. Thomas Aquinas. Can you say a little bit about how Catholic principles in just war help us to limit or navigate the developments in modern warfare? I'm, per, I'm thinking particularly of, is it ethical or not for Catholics to use drones, for example? Is, does technology like that affect the moral evaluation of warfare? Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, we need to uh, distinguish between high-level, more abstract philosophical principles, which which remain the same over time, and then how do we apply those in concrete circumstances? So, whenever we're talking about a particular act um, during war, like the like the use of drones, uh, you turn to another aspect of just war theory. Um, at the beginning of this podcast, I was talking about the use ad bellum, which is um, justice and resorting to war. But the just war theory also has a whole list of different criteria to think about um, or to apply when it comes to conduct during war. Um, this is the called the use in bellum or justice during the war. Um, and 
uh, perhaps the most important principle in the use in Bellow is called the principle of discrimination. Um, and the law of war, which in some ways tracks um, just worth your use in Bellow, it's called distinction. Um, but the idea behind this principle is just that in general, um, war fighters like soldiers, right, um, airmen, they have to discriminate between um, legitimate and illegitimate targets. Um, legitimate targets are military in nature. They're opposing combatants, um, military equipment, um, but um, non-combatants, those cannot be directly targeted or directly attacked in, ter in terms of war. Uh, and I think that follows just from the, the whole basic rationale um, behind the, the just war theory in the first place. Because if you remember that the whole idea of the just war theory was um, we're justified in going to war to correct some kind of wrong. And um, Francisco de Vittoria famously says, well, an innocent person has done you no wrong. So you're not licensed then to attack the innocent. You're only licensed to attack uh, the people who are um, engaged in the wrongdoing. Um, so in an international armed conflict, that would be uh, opposing combatants, right? Uh, and other kinds of conflict like with, against terrorists, right? it would be people who are part of the, the terrorist network or terrorist cell. Uh, they're the only people that can be directly attacked. Uh, you can do that in a way it's very up close and personal, right? If you send like a Navy SEAL um, after them. Um, but there's no reason in principle that you couldn't be um, trying to obey that principle from the use of an unmanned vehicle um, either. So I don't think the just war theory is going to, as such, rule out the use of drones. Um, but how do we use those drones? Are we using them in a way that's discriminant? And also, and another aspect of this is, are we using them uh, in a way that is proportionate as well? Because this is another um, important aspect of use in Bellow. Uh, we can't directly attack uh, non-combatants, but that that doesn't rule out um, harm that occurs to, to non-combatants as a side effect of legitimate military operations. Um, so side effect harm, right? This is traditionally governed by this um, ethical principle known as the principle of double effect. Uh, and it basically says that, uh, look, if you have side effect harm or, or collateral damage, as it's sometimes referred to today, um, you have to take determinate steps to try to minimize that collateral damage to the extent that that's possible. And you also have to make sure that collateral damage is proportionate to the value of, you know, the, the target that you're trying to take out. It, it can't be excessive in relation to that. And there, I think, you know, um, that, that kind of gets a real purchase for thinking about our, um, our actual use of drones. Are we using them not only in a way that's discriminate, are we also using them in a way that's proportionate as well? Or when we order drone strikes, are we causing excessive collateral harm to um, the, the non-combatants who are not targeting. So for a final portion of the segment, I was just thinking how some of this teaching translates to the life of grace and virtue of Christians who aren't going to find themselves in the midst of a war or in the midst of a war. Um, because I think, you know, sometimes when you hear Christianity, Christianity described, it makes it sound as if we're responsible for becoming doormats or victims, you know, so we're to turn the other cheek uh, without real consideration or regard for the vindication of rights or for uh, the defense of our own personal integrity, or so it may seem uh, when, when certain people kind of render that text in preaching or teaching, however, um, and you made reference to, to pacifism at a certain point. And I'm thinking of the way that St. Thomas describes 
why priests oughtn't to be combatants. You know, they ought to go up to the altar of God uh, and, as it were, have their blood shed rather than shed blood. And so, you know, there's a high, there's a there's a whole jumble of a, of associations uh, when it comes to Christianity and its stance vis-a-vis war. So we've talked about how there is this tradition of legitimizing, not only legitimizing, but like prosecuting warfare uh, within a Christian setting. Um, but thinking of then uh, the, the like the individual listener, maybe what are what are some ways in which this translates to our growth in in the life of virtue? I'm thinking specifically in terms of the virtue of courage, or in the virtue of justice, to which you've made reference a couple of times. Can you think of um, yes, yeah, some ways in which it applies. Yeah. Well, first of all, maybe I can just address the the question of pacifism. Of, yeah, sure. Because people often wonder how is how is just war theory compatible with Christianity at all? Um, after all, you know, Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount has the, the so called hard sayings, right? Resist not evil. Um, if your neighbor strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. Um, isn't that isn't that pacifism? And many uh, Christians have come to that conclusion. Um, why why didn't why didn't Aquinas why didn't Saint Augustine why didn't others in the um, just war tradition draw that same conclusion? Um, basically, they they believe that you had to um, read those passages from the Sermon on the Mount within the, the totality of scriptures. Um, Jesus himself said he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Um, so if you look at the the Old Testament, right? Um, well, the Israelites do engage in war, both defensive and, and offensive war. Um, looking further ahead to, to the letters of St. Paul, um, St. Paul in uh, Romans chapter 13 says that, um, that the civil authority is given by God to be a guardian of justice. And so they do not draw the sword in vain. Um, how, do you, how do you reconcile those passages then? And um, there, there are several um, in, interpretive strategies that, that have been used that were employed by Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, one thing they said was, you know, there's, there's a distinction between a, a precept and a counsel. Um, precepts are things that, that we're always obliged to uphold, right? So think of like the Ten Commandments, uh, thou shalt not murder. Um, those things everyone is obliged to uphold. But... Um, there are also councils in Christianity, um, and this is where, you know, the, the priesthood, the, that turning the other cheek um, could be, could be a, a, a sort of more noble path, even if it's not required, um, and even if it's uh, a more noble path for um, individuals. Um, the second sort of, I think, interpretive key here is that when, when Jesus said, like, resist not evil, he was he was talking to um, a group of private individuals in their own private lives. Um, he wasn't referring to the use of um, force by the state or the civil authority for the overall security of the state. Um, and can you repeat the other part of your question then? Sure, it's just translating some of these teachings to our lives of, of grace and virtue, specifically how we exercise the virtue of justice and of courage um, and how we can kind of balance out you know, our contemporaries talk often of vindicating the rights, and then some people will characterize Christianity as a kind of, you know, religious victimization. How is it that we chart a course through an excessive concern for the vindication of our rights on the one hand, uh, and then a kind of doormat theology whereby we become the punching bag of anyone who would aggress? Okay, uh, so like, sure. how, does, how does this vision of belligerence take root in our own virtuous lives? Sure. Uh, maybe I can just 
say something about the virtue of, of courage here as well. Um, uh, St. Thomas distinguishes two different forms that courage can take. Um, so, so courage in general is about uh, restraining fear and moderating daring so that reason has proposed that there's uh, some good, but there's also certain hindrances or obstacles to that good. Um, and when we think of courage, we typically think of um, courage as like attacking those obstacles, right? Um, they stand in the way. Um, we need to be daring. We have to restrain our fear. Um, we can't we can't approach in a way it's reckless, right? Prudence or, or sorry, courage, like all the virtue has has to be informed by prudence. But it's fundamentally something offensive. It's something it, it's um, offensive in the sense of offense of attacking this thing that's hindering us. And certainly, like right in war, um, that kind of courage is often called for. But Aquinas also distinguishes another kind of courage, which he says is about enduring hardships, um, enduring things patiently that maybe it's it's impossible for us to do anything about or it's impossible for us to overcome. So there you can think of like the, the Christian martyrs, right? Who are enduring uh, persecution for the sake of the good of the kingdom of God. Um, I think it's really important to remember that that other form of, of courage, that, that kind of enduring suffering form of courage is also a legitimate form of courage. And in fact, Aquinas himself says it's actually the higher form of courage, just the kind of courage that was the, that was displayed by the martyrs as opposed to soldiers. Fantastic. All right, with that, we've come to the end of our time. Um, so thanks so much for yeah having dedicated well one your your life to to thinking about these things, but furthermore this time to uh, to communicating them to our listeners. Um, if folks would like to follow up, do you have any recommendations for resources or particular catechesis or teachings or even ways to kind of connect with your work that they can pursue? Yeah. Um, for my own work, I have a, a book out on the principle of double effect, uh, which I talked about a little bit today. Um, it's called Intention and Wrongdoing in Defense of Double Effect. Um, for the for the just war theory more generally, I would recommend um, some of the writings by this mid 20th century philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe. Um, she was a Catholic philosopher who wrote several um, short articles on war in the middle of the 20th century. Um, um, and I finally, I'd recommend uh, another contemporary just war writer named James Turner Johnston. Um, he has several books on the just war theory, I think are very consonant um, with the whole um, Catholic intellectual tradition. Okay, wonderful. Um, again, thanks so much. And Turning now to our, to our listeners, I think I've slurred every sentence that I have tried to pronounce in the course of this episode. So either I'm tired or I'm at the end of my dissertation or both. Uh, so thanks as always for listening to God's Planning. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you would, in your kindness, uh, like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app and leave a five-star review, all of which helps to get the word out. Uh, preaching and teaching is good, better when heard. Um, you also find links in the show notes or description for merchandise and then events. Uh, so check out those details by following the links. All right. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's planning. Mm -hmm.